This is Fundraising Radio, and today's guest speaker we have Kim Patel, scout for Female Founded Club, angel investor, and venture fellow at LA Corp. And this episode, we're mostly going to talk about scouts for VCs. What do scouts do? How should founders interact with scouts? How can one become a scout? How do scouts get promoted? Etc. Tons of stuff about scouts, as you might have. Guest. So, Kim, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Female Founded Club. Yeah, so thanks, Constantine. I'm glad to be here. Uh, just a little bit about me. So, I currently work at Alicorp, which is a New York based uh, incubator um, and early stage investment firm. So, what that means is, is they come up with some of their own companies, uh, actually, a lot of the time, and, but they also invest uh, pre seed to Series A. Prior to that, I spent time at Harlem Capital as a venture fellow uh, focused on uh, early stage investments for minority and female founders. And then, you know, while I was doing uh, some work in VC, I also worked in the media industry and so previously served as a director of global strategy at Vice Media in New York. So, yeah, so, um, you know, at kind of at the intersection of that, uh, found myself speaking to Carly Saper, who is a founder of Female Founded Club. Um, it is essentially a scout network across the United States that's focused on finding female-founded businesses and connecting them with female investors. So what it is, is it's an investing platform. It's, it's just a platform that matches um, investors and companies. And so the scouts are responsible for sourcing companies and then um, also trying to bring on other investors so that they can get access to all of these amazing companies that are founded by women. That's really interesting. So let's first talk about uh, Female Founded Club because it sounds like a, like an interesting idea. How exactly does this work? So let's take a specific example. So for example, uh, you find an interesting uh, startup down there in New York and founded by females and what's what's happening next yeah so let's say i uh i I come across a company really love the founder what i'll do is i'll have them sign up onto female founded clubs uh platform and so what that means is is that the founder is essentially putting their company on this platform for the investors to view. So it's a, so it's a double-sided platform. So you also have the investor side. I myself scout, but I'm also an investor. And so I signed up as an investor and I can view, you know, this founder's company and all of the other companies that the other scouts have sourced that I may want to invest in and then reach out directly to those founders. Um, it just essentially what it does is creates a direct deal flow of, women-led companies to women investors. And so we wanted to create this network of that, essentially that, where you were, you had this like group of empowered women um, to go out there and really invest and find these companies. The, the tough part with scouting and sourcing and all of this is like going out there and looking and finding those companies is one of the hardest things because there's just so many and so many mm-hmm. great companies out there. And so um, this really kind of helps cut the noise out. That's that's really interesting. And what incentives do scouts have? So when you find a company, what's what's your major incentive to push it up? You know, to to GPs to LPs. Yeah. So scout programs are structured a little differently. In our case, the scout program, we don't um, we're not given like a pot of money. So there are typical scout programs in the larger VC funds. Let's say like a Sequoia 
where essentially I give you, Constantine, uh, $10 million for you to go out there and invest. You as a mm-hmm. scout can go and invest in these companies without like without necessarily permission from the GP. It's not like a full deal process. You're just a scout on behalf of Sequoia. You're going to go and at the pre-seed stage, pre-seed, pre-product, like go and give a founder like a few hundred K here, a few hundred K there, kind of smaller check sizes. What that then does is it creates this entire pipeline of pre-seed investment. And so when we're ready as a fund, uh, you know, fund X is ready to invest at the seed level. And now mm-hmm. I want to cut a million multi-million dollar check. Maybe it's a $10 million, $5 million seed round. And I want to lead because the scout was so compelled about this investment and you've made progress and X- you kind of reached all these KPIs. I can now directly go to you and say, my scout already invested in you. Like, I want to be a part of this round. I want to lead this round. It just, it, it, it creates a network that's blurred um, between you now have a scout that's also an investor, but is also could be an advisor because a lot of these scouts are also operators. So what you'll find is, is that VC funds employ scout programs because they want to broaden this ability to get the founder's attention. You know, the, the, the marketplace has fundamentally changed over the last five years even um, in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, five or 10 years ago, if you're in a, if you're a founder, you went to go, you wanted to like go and raise some money. You'd go to, San, you'd go to Sandhole Road, you'd go to San Francisco, you'd go shuffle up and down Sandhole Road, you know, going to firm after firm and probably like 20, 25 firms tops that you'd visit. Now you're a founder and you're raising money. I mean, granted we're in a, during the pandemic, it's a little different, but you know, Three months ago, you, you'd say you're out there raising money. You could get inbounds from 20, 30 plus VCs from all over the country. You didn't just have to go out to San Francisco and like meet with these specific venture capitalists. So there is a lot of demand. And so the attention a founder has to all of these investors. And like when you look at cap tables now for a seed round, there's like six, seven, eight, nine investors. It's kind of insane. So let's say you have these nine funds, you have partners at every single one of these funds, you have advisors at every single one of these funds. That's a lot of stakeholders for a founder or a founding team Mm -hmm. to manage. The scout kind of serves as this conduit between, um, you know, kind of between like an a investor and an advisor because these scouts are old operate are ex operators, um, or they may be operating and scouting at the same time. Scouting is usually not necessarily just a full time job for them. They they're doing other things. So um, the founder can kind of just have this relationship with the scout, and then when the scout is ready to bring the deal uh, to the G to the GP they will, they'll flow it up the food chain. What they do a lot mm-hmm. of the times is, let's say I invested in you at the pre-seed, I'm a scout, I give you 200K as your first initial pre-seed check. And, or yeah, it's essentially acting like kind of a semi-angel. And then I'll email my GP and say, hey, this guy's a rock star. Like we got to keep an eye on him. He's not ready for us yet. Like it's too small, but we got, you know, we got to look out. And like, that's it. You're officially on the radar. Mm-hmm. Right. But I won't necessarily tell you I did that. I'll do it in the background. Got it. That's really exciting. And I was curious, how do you source your deals? So where do you find those potential investments that you make or potential investments that you push up the chain? I mean, it's a mixed bag. I think if I were to create a pie chart about what this looked like, <laughs> uh, there, you know, I would say that um, 
40% is very organic. So I would say 40 to 50% is very organic. I, that's like, I'm speaking with friends, uh, colleagues, peers, uh, that work in multiple different types of industries have told me about a cool product, have been testing something out, um, that, you know, that type of very, very organic. I think some of that also includes like if I'm on the web searching for something and like I read an article and a name pops up or a company pops up, or I see something that, um, I see something of really cool online where like, I'm like, Oh, that's like an interesting design. Like how do they create that? Or like, mm-hmm. That, you know, and you have to ask these questions. So that's like the very organic piece. I think the inorganic is, is, um, then you get inbounds, right? Like, so on LinkedIn, you get a ton of inbounds. I also can see what other VCs may be looking at or investing in. So I'm always talking to those investors, like who's come across their table. You hear about who's raising. Um, so that's more inorganic because it's more, it's inbound versus like an outbound situation mm-hmm. of, me hearing about something cool and I'm like, Oh, like who's the founder or, or being introduced to potential founders. Like they might not, they might be working on their first idea or their first company and they're not like necessarily at the raise stage yet, but I've been introduced to them and I try, I build a relationship with them and understand what they're building and why and kind of ask those questions. And then, you know, if it's, and then I try to keep that relationship with them to under, to like follow them through um, their life cycles. Got and that sounds even more exciting than, than the previous question. And here I wanted to move on to how should, so you reach out to founders sometimes too, you get introductions, but if you don't see them on, you know, TechCrunch or uh, anywhere in the media and they actually have to reach out to you, how should they do this? Should they just you know, drop you a message on LinkedIn or should they try to find your email somewhere or how, how should they do this? Yeah, so I'd say um, I get LinkedIn inbounds a lot, and it's it's difficult because I don't necessarily have the time to look at them all the time. So, like, for example, you know, I have some time set out this week to, like, catch up on my LinkedIn. And so that's not, like, the best thing because when you're, you know, you're a founder, you're busy, you want to get in front of somebody, you don't want to wait a few weeks to do that. Right. The best way to do it is to be able to find a soft referral. So if you see, and this is not just for me, but in general, for founders in general, like if you see that if you're interested in meeting, you know, X investor, let's say myself, and you see somebody I'm connected to on LinkedIn and uh, you may know them or you may be able to get a soft intro, like that is more compelling. So like if that person then sends me an email, is like, hey, look, this founder reached out to me. I like came across them a few times. I think they're pretty smart. You should probably talk to them. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take the call. I mean, like I'll, and, and definitely because it's coming through my email channel too, because I'm like checking email all the time. And so, and so are most, um, so are most investors. And so I think that's also a thing. I mean, the other way is, is also to be on, to be on some of these sites like product hunt and like things like that, where people are looking and scouting and looking for new types of products um, and innovations to invest in. Like you you don't necessarily have to be mentioned in TechCrunch to be able to like get garner that attention. Actually, if anything, if you are mentioned in TechCrunch, that's probably means that like I'm already gonna go. You're it's already late for me to like get in to a valuation that I'm happier with because you're probably gonna become overvalued in the sense that like if everyone knows it, not because. So sorry, let me rephrase. It's not because <laughs> tech, it's not because TechCrunch will add to your valuation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that. 
everyone reads it. And so if everyone knows that you exist and like thinks and thinks your product is cool and like there's an article about it, then you're going to have a ton of inbounds. And therefore that demand can already kind of, it's, it's already like something that everyone is aware of, right? The whole point of VC investing is this, is this notion of information cannot be commoditized. Otherwise right. everyone would always make great returns. And so when you're going off of commoditized information like that, it's not, at least at the early stage, I'm talking about the pre-seed and the seed level, it's not super beneficial. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, that does make sense. And all those media publications make a lot of noise. That's true. And it's sometimes tough to penetrate through that noise. Um, so let's talk about being a fellow venture fellow. What does this mean? What What's the venture fellow and how, how is that different from a scout? Yeah, so scouts are usually... Um, you know, and I'm just starting out my career in the space, but scouts are the better, the best scouts are usually have operated or ran a company before or founded a company before they're, they're, uh, longer along in their career. Some, some of them are actually really young, but they just happen to be like brilliant engineers or brilliant operators that worked or were very early employees and, in, in um, kind of huge companies like unicorn companies. Um, and then they, they're the ones that have the network that like G that general partners want access to. So then, mm -hmm. you know, you'll say like, Hey, you were the 25th employee at Uber, you know, every Uber alumni that's probably starting a company right now, I'm going to give you 10 million and like, you're going to go and invest in all of their pre-seed rounds so that I have access to that network. And so like, that's like what a scout is. And that's a benefit of a scout. A venture fellow is not a scout because it, their objective is not just to source deals. Um, and also they're not given, they're not given money to invest um, on behalf of the fund. What a fellow does is, is it, it, again, it differs fund by fund, but you're essentially functioning as a venture associate um, or senior associate, depending on your level. And what you're doing is everything from diligence to uh, sourcing to um, helping with portfolio operations. So it's, it's, it's associate, but it's like a, it's not necessarily a full-time role. So when I was mm -hmm. my first venture fellow role, I already had a full-time job. I was running strategy at Vice Media globally and then at night basically would do this kind of venture work. The great thing the great thing was was that I was able to kind of marry both of these worlds. So I would come across a lot of people in my day-to-day -day job in media and in New York and get access to networks that didn't necessarily um, weren't necessarily in your typical tech circles or, or your tech ecosystem in New York. And so that was really nice because I was able to provide insight and also get access to certain types of deals or like certain types of founders um, that was valuable for the fund at the time. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's really the difference. Got it. That's, that's a really great explanation. And here I wanted to move on to something that we mentioned a couple of times, but we really didn't, I didn't plan to go into this topic, but now I will. So it's the media. And how do you get this media attention? So, I mean, every startup founder wants to be mentioned in TechCrunch or Forbes or whatever you call it. Uh, but how does one get access to those publications if they are not, you know, they're not something extremely, extremely extraordinary. So if they didn't raise 10 millions, but they think that they got something, how can they get published in, on, let's say, TechCrunch? Yeah, so, you know, I've 
spoken with TechCrunch editors before, and and some of the best ones, they they actually they get a lot of um, they get a lot of inbounds. Like you have to imagine, you're a journalist, like you get a ton of inbounds right. on Twitter, on DMs, like on Twitter, like on you know especially uh, emails, etc. On LinkedIn, one don't reach out to journalists on LinkedIn. Two, I think <laughs> when you're a founder, you don't have to raise $10 million or you have some big round with like a big name VC to get in these articles. What the editors really want, what these journalists really want is they want a great story, right? And so I think there are, you know, one of the, one of the pieces of advice I gave a startup I was working with in Boston was they were working to solve a problem focused on childcare uh, for mm-hmm. the Boston community. And that's what their startup was, was primarily focused on addressing the lack of childcare that existed in Boston. And I thought it was a great startup that I mission really made sense. They really wanted to help parents. And, um, and there was a journalist in, you know, I think it was like the Boston globe or something that addressed the same issue a few months before she wrote an article about mm-hmm. how there's literally no childcare in Boston, how big of an issue it is, why it matters. And it was a great piece. And to me, I was like, reach out to this exact person because this person already has an interest in the problem they're trying to solve. Right. And so there's one that's like a very targeted way of doing that. And it doesn't matter if this startup like raised a bunch of money She'll write about it because it's about a problem that she believes is imperative to be spoken mm-hmm. about and to be shared about. So I think they're not looking for, I mean, they know that not that reading another story about a fundraise, it's not exciting, right? Like what you want to be able to do is create a, is to have this compelling story about your company. It doesn't necessarily have to be like, this is why I started my company. It can be about like, Hey, we just thought you might find this interesting. Like this is a problem we're solving. Um, you know, wanted to just like build this relationship. It's always good to build relationships with journalists as well, but also like it's about timing too, right? If you're, if you're out there as a company right now and you're addressing the COVID pandemic and you're doing it in a little bit of a different way that or like very much turned your company around to address it. Like there is press that you could probably get granted. A lot of companies have done this, mm-hmm. but if you if you can just write a very short blur about like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is kind of who I am and why I did this and the, why I started this company. You know, you'll intrigue somebody on the other end of that DM or that email, and um, and they'll want to talk to you. And so I think a lot of it is definitely what they don't want is pre rehearsed like your your PR person looked it over. Everything is canned. Like they don't want that stuff because nobody Mm -hmm. finds that interesting. Um, And they don't want to publish press releases about your fundraise either. So. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And that's, that's great advice. You know, just make sure that your interests align with the, with the publisher and then do your best to reach out, use every channel you can, but here we're moving on to, your personal investment preferences. So you mentioned that you do angel investing as well. And what do you like to invest in? So right now, the areas that I'm focused on are actually um, specific problems that to me, I find very personal. So I think one of the areas is uh, access to like access to software and productivity tools for like the masses. So this huge in- it's been a huge rise in essentially like no code platforms or the ability to democratize 
scapegoating or the democratized building of technology. Because at the end of the day, not every problem is a hundred million dollar problem. And so what you need to be able to do is have tools for, you know, the small nonprofit or for government or for things like that, that can build and access software that enables them to actually build better products. Um, and we just don't have like technology is expensive in this country. And so there has to be a way to kind of bring that cost down for, for the larger part of the society, especially in the U S um, so that's like an area that I'm very interested in. I'm very interested in financial wellness products, um, trying to find products that actually address financial wellness holistically throughout a consumer's life, not just mm-hmm. budgeting or not just credit cards, um, and trying to see what that might look like. Uh, retraining um, for jobs is another area that I'm very interested in, mm-hmm. uh, especially after COVID. So, um, you know, what can... Like, are there programs out there that are going to help corporations retrain a lot of their workforce so that, so that um, you know, they're able to be employed, especially after Corona? Um, higher education is going to be another area that we're looking into what, what's going to be outside of remote learning, but also um, trying to have more access to what that higher, edu- what a higher education is today in the United States. So I, I think underlying a lot of these problems that I'm looking into or wanting to find companies that are solving them is that they're all very human centric, right? They're all very focused on, I think, larger societal issues we see today. Um, But that's the, those are the types of companies that get me really excited. But given my background in consumer, I also have like a soft spot for media and entertainment uh, companies as well. So social platforms are big for me. Community-based platforms are big for me. Um, and uh, certain consumer products that I think have a very compelling brand. God, that's really interesting. And those topics that you chose to invest in, those are pretty interesting as well. So let's talk about what you're looking in, in those specific companies. So what are the three major points that you want to see on the pitch deck when you review it? So I think, I think outside of the areas that I'm interested in, any pitch deck that I look at, you need to be able to have a clearly defined problem um, you know, I, that you'd be surprised at how many founders get that wrong, um, because they try to address too much or they're trying to address too big of a problem. And they're like, and the product they're originally building and especially in the earlier stages only addresses one piece of that. It's okay that your roadmap, you know, the vision for your company over the lifetime of your companies is going to address that larger problem, but, but you need to make that clear, right? So like, if this is the really big problem, this is what I've built so far to like address this piece of it. Like that's okay. You don't need to have had your MVP address the big problem right away because that's very difficult to do. The other is um, what makes you or like your founding team, the right team to solve this problem. Uh, It's very important to know, you know, I think plenty of people can come up with the, like a solution to a problem and write it down on a piece of paper and then never build anything because that happens all the time. So it's not, it's not the matter that you thought of this problem to solve. Like that's not what it is because there's plenty of people that probably do that, but it's like what makes you the right person to build a solution um, is uh, in the earlier stage. It's really important because you're very much investing in the person and the founder and the founding team, because you don't have all these metrics and like all of this data to go off of to say like, yes, I know that you will succeed. And I know that your product will succeed because I've already seen all this traction 
especially if it's like pre-seed, you are definitely investing in that person. And then the third piece is to address why now. So there are a lot of problems that have existed for a really long time, but you know, people started to solve for them earlier than people were ready. So I think an example of this is, is when, um, when AR VR became really big in like 2014, 2015. Uh, and it was on the tip of everyone's mouth, especially in media. But the thing is, is that there wasn't really like a compelling reason for someone to put a headset on and sit in their living room and be at a concert. But now, right, the folks that were developing that technology, and now you see a reason where you see you live in a world where not everybody can go out to a concert anymore. It's a completely different ballgame. Same problem, mm -hmm. same same technology, technological solution. The pro, the scope of the problem has completely changed, and so it was very much ahead of its time. So it's the real question is like, why now? Like, why is that timing correct right now? Right, right. And here, I think we're moving on to our last question. And I want to modify it a little bit. And I would form this. So I'm probably saying that over 20% of my listeners are actually female founders. So uh, what's your advice to them in terms of fundraising? What should they do? Are there any specific sources that you would like them to use? So for example, maybe one step that they should definitely take is registering at female founded club, because you know, it's just exposure to potential investors or what else would you recommend them doing? Yeah, so I think um, for female founders, definitely want to be able to, yeah, I mean, definitely register at a female founder club. That would be great. But also connect with other female founders. It is so important to have a community of founders with mm -hmm. you when you're going through this journey because founding a company is extremely lonely uh, and you can learn so much from each other. And I think it doesn't have to necessarily just be female founders. I think very much so find founders that you can like have a support system with male and female. I also think that it's extremely important that you have mentors that are both male and female um, in terms of the partner side and on the VC side too. Uh, there are databases out there. There's, you know, on the VC side, there are so many groups that's like women in VC um, that are focused on highlighting and elevating female founded companies. Mm -hmm. um, definitely reach out to people in those communities. I am one of them. I think um, there are also specific uh, venture capital firms that are focused on female founders and minority founders. And so it's very important that you, even if you're not necessarily looking for an investment from them, try to build a relationship with them because they will be more willing to help you and connect with you since it's their fund's mission to elevate founders such as yourself. So um, you want to be able to build relationships with those types of firms. That's great advice. That's great advice. And I will definitely leave a link to Female Founded Club in the description of this episode. So you feel free to check it out and make sure to register it. Uh, but here I want to ask you last, last question, then we'll wrap it up. And it's about building a team of uh, minority founded team or female founded team. Uh, uh, and I was wondering if uh, it does make sense to actually put an effort to make it exclusively female founded team so uh just completely excluding any males to make sure that you get all this attention of those uh you know female focused funds do you think that makes sense or is it not quite the, the strategy no i don't i don't think that's a strategy that you should necessarily <laughs> employ and the reason i say this is because helping or elevating female founders is not 
should not be done at the expense of male founders. That's not the mm -hmm. point, right? The point is, is to just create more opportunities for a class of people that haven't necessarily had those opportunities in the past. And, and so it's, it's more of a societal issue than it is, Hey, like we can only have females run this company and like, it'll make it better for that reason. Like that's not at all. I think what any of these institutions or funds are saying, um, it's not what I'm saying. What I think needs to happen is, is that women need to be, women need to be given an equal opportunity as men to found those companies to receive the same level of, of funding to not to be subject to the same types of diligence questions. Like, you know, there are studies out there that have shown during due diligence, the type, the types of questions asked between a male founder and a female founder are very, are different. Um, and so therefore the responses are different. Therefore the rate of investment is different. So like there's all these kind of biased subconscious biases that exist. And so it's, being aware of those things as an, as an investor, being in this, in this community of, you know, of founders and investors, being aware of that and, and understanding that that exists um, both as a female and a male. And I think that's really important mm -hmm. uh, in order for this to actually, in order for us to have more female founded companies and more female executives and more female investors and, and to have it to be more equitable, you need allies, you need male allies. Um, and so that's really important to have. So I think if you're building a team and it's great, if you're a female and you're a CEO and or a founder um, stack your team with the best people there are and, and understand that, understand that that may actually look male dominated. And if, if that is the case, then like really ask yourself, like, did you try hard enough to look and to find female talent? I think it's a question of like, did you, did you, were you open enough? Were you accessible enough for people to be able to access this opportunity? Or were you only focused on your one network of, of the male engineer you knew from mm -hmm. Stanford and like, that's the only person you asked. And like, so therefore he sourced more male engineers for you to find a CTO. Like that's, that's the issue. Right. And it's not right. necessarily this issue of like, you need to only stack it with females. It's that's, you know, that's not how you should think about building a team, but it is fair to ask yourself those questions when you are building a team, because it'll make you more aware. And the more people that do that, the more opportunities get created for a diverse founding team. Absolutely. I totally agree with you on this point. And on this point, we'll actually wrap it up. Thanks a lot, team, for coming out today and for sharing your experience and knowledge in this and for explaining what a scout is, how do scouts work, and you know how this whole system works. And a lot of great insights into female-founded team. I think that that was, a, that was a great part of our episode as well. So... Thanks again and have a great day. Yep. Thank you.